Welcome to another episode of our Founders Podcast. I'm your host, Ash, and this is a show where I interview proven founders and industry experts who share their stories, strategies, and insights to help you build, launch, and grow your business. In this episode, I talk to Zach, founder of Yembo AI. Zach currently wears multiple hats as the CTO and co-founder of Yembo AI, an innovative company on a mission to revolutionize home service companies with cutting-edge AI products. But that's not all. Zach's expertise doesn't stop at co-founding a dynamic startup. He's also an accomplished author, having penned the insightful book, Grow Up Fast, which dwells into fascinating world of AI entrepreneurship. With Zach's wealth of knowledge and expert experience, I'm convinced that this episode is featuring, featuring him would be bring immense value. So I hope you enjoy. Okay, Zach, welcome to the show. Hi, Ash. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Great. Do you have a favorite quote, something that inspires or motivates you, you would like to share with us? Sure. There's a line that I find myself um, repeating all the time, and I think we'll, we'll be able to talk about it more. And that is, um, the first version of your product is not as good as you think it is. And um, I know <laughs> it's really hard to hear, but when you're when you're starting something, it's uh, there's like an incentive to declare victory as soon as it works end to end. Um, yeah. but the road is long and it's not done at that point. So we can, we can chat more about it, but I think the, the sooner you make your peace with that fact, the, uh, the better it'll be. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So, so tell us about Yembo AI then what does the product do? Who is it for? And what, what's the main problem you're helping to solve? Sure. So Yembo solves this problem that's general to the home home services industry. And with home services, think about, um, moving or property insurance or these kinds of industries, somebody usually needs to physically inspect, come to your house and look to give you a quote. So it's unlike other areas that have been um, kind of accelerated or grown by e-commerce, things like that, because everything's custom. I can go on Amazon, I can buy like a $2 toothbrush and then I can get it showing up at my door the next day. It gets tracked all along the way. But that's because mm -hmm. that manufacturer made a toothbrush and it's like one size fits all. Yeah. But in services, if you want to, let's say, uh, move me from California to London, you would need to come and look at, okay, there's books on the shelves. How many boxes? Okay, I'd have to pack up that sofa. Do I need a 16-foot truck? If it's an international move, maybe there's a, 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 a seat container it needs to go on um, yeah. across the ocean, all these kinds of things. So it's a very labor intensive and kind of tedious process, but really important to get right, right? If I just guess what you have and show up with the wrong equipment or the wrong size crew, it's going to be a disaster. So what Yembo does is we provide computer vision technology to the service provider. Um, we started with the moving industry and we've added on in addition to that, we're, we're serving property insurance as well now. And rather than having an in-person visit where someone has to walk around and identify everything, you can scan quick 20 or so second videos of each room in your house. Our AI will identify what's in that video, give you a summary of here are the images, here's the items. In the moving product, we give you volume and weight estimates because that's what it takes to do a move. In property mm -hmm. insurance, the data points are slightly different. Um, mm -hmm. And then the mover can have this result. They can review it. They can have a conversation with the customer. It's faster. It's more accurate. And... Um, you're able to, if you're a moving company, you're able to turn around more quotes in a day because you're not spending as much time sitting in traffic, driving around, counting boxes. Um, you're able to kind of focus on the higher value aspects of um, running a sales organization in a home service business. So that's what we provide. Awesome. Awesome. And I'm, uh, while you were explaining it to me, I was just thinking, um, I have seen this thing uh, on one of the listings where you can see the house inside in a 3D way. Uh, is it something similar or Yambo AI is more focused on the data and, 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 and the space and other things? So Yambo is focused on extracting insights out of that video. The specific right. insights vary from product to product. Um, our moving product is mostly focused on 2D because movers more are interested in like give me the list of furniture. Um, we are working on some newer some newer areas in the insurance space where we do do 3D reconstruction and build 3D models. And that's powerful for use cases where you need to actually measure. Um, if you need to like tap on two points and see like how many square feet of drywall, all those kinds of things. 
then mm. getting down to um, to meters or feet and inches um, actually matters. So we we have like this library of capabilities at the company, but um, this is one key part we'll kind of chat about more, I'm sure. But we want to make sure that it's valuable to the end user. I mean, as engineers, we think AI is cool and it's probably because it is. But mm. at the end of the day, the customer cares about their workflow. So they don't Indeed. want just an AI algorithm. They need something they can log into, they can use. They want to be able to message the customer. They want to be able to get the quote and turn it around. So yeah. I feel like the AI is kind of like the engine, but the actual value to the customer is an outcome that AI enables. Um, they don't really care about AI. They care about being able to do three to five times as many quotes in a day. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So let's let's talk about where the story began. Where did the idea for Yambo came from? Sure. So the idea for Yembo came, I feel like a lot of startups probably start this way. And when, as a founder, when you find yourself sitting at the intersection of two different worlds and you realize that you have something new, um, that's mm -hmm. kind of where the spark came. So I'm an engineer by training, went to school for computer engineering, worked at a big tech company um, right out of college. So I've always been, always been an engineer um, for basically my entire adult life. And at my day job, I was looking at new emerging areas of technology, deep learning, AI, computer vision was the was the topic that uh, our team was tasked with looking at. So I was going to conferences and trade shows and looking at what startups are out there. And it was really invigorating. I mean, people had so many different ideas, um, so many different use cases that previously people thought were impossible were now becoming possible because AI was improving and making these use cases uh, able to be done. Things like self-driving cars and drones. Yeah, and yeah. my wife was working at a moving company, so by day I'd be having these like mind-blowing experiences around all the different cool things that AI could do, and then I'd come home, and my wife would tell me about these problems that came up around if a job was not estimated correctly, or mm -hmm. um, just how much work it takes when everything does go well to be able to get it right. I mean, think of it this way: if it takes sixty-five cartons to move your house, and I show up with sixty-four, that is actually a huge operational issue. Because mm -hmm. I have to leave, go buy more. That like uh, it throws your cost structure out of whack, or I have to ask you to like throw some things out, and it's just not a great yeah. customer experience. Or I just cram it in, and there's risk something breaks. And it's a relatively little detail, right? Like if a typical move has maybe 300, 400 items in it, and mm -hmm. um, I bring one box too few. These this is the entire home service industry. It's not just moving. Um, even if you're like a plumber or a painter, like these kinds of details matter. And that's where we saw an opportunity where you could take these advancements that were happening happening in computer vision and you could bring them to an industry that kind of needs it um, because they're not able to um, they're not able to effectively give these estimates. And a lot of the work that AI can do, it's like maybe a general learning that we found, is that if AI um, it's not magic. It can do things. If you look at a video, if a person could train, if a trained person could look at it and tell what's there, the AI can be trained. But if it's not there, um, AI will never tell you what's behind that closet door. For instance, it's just not here. It doesn't know. It can guess, but it's not going to be accurate. Mm. Um, but what AI can do is it can do it much more faster and much more effectively. So Indeed. if you look at our actual quotes when we give things back, one of our first um, clients when they first saw one of these estimates that we give, they were kind of mind blown because we put pictures of each item that's there. So we don't just say in this room, there's a sofa, you'll see like the actual blue sofa chair at the picture and a dot on it and the dot is labeled sofa chair. And what was happening was um, they, the prospect assumed that a person had done it. And they, the feedback was like, oh my gosh, who on earth has the time to go through and take each image and label and draw the dot on it? Like uh, it just, it's not, it's not a uh, cost effective to do that. But what they didn't realize, it was an algorithm doing it, not people. So you get this better, more robust experience, but it's not, um, it's not um, out of reach anymore. Um, if you had to have a person in manual labor doing it, then it would be. But because we have computer vision, um, we're able to kind of unlock these use cases that makes everyone's experience better. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm also thinking now, while you were explaining it to me, that, <clears throat> you know, when somebody resells their house, they have to go to these mortgage companies. And then before these lenders approve their refinancing on loan, they send 
a surveyor to your house. What that surveyor does is it comes to your house, he measures the wall-to-wall -wall distances, he measures the quality of the walls, if it's not broken or what upgrades you have done. And then he comes back with, a, with an estimation that this much you can borrow against this property. I'm guessing this product would be really good for that kind of use case because then the person doesn't have to come. It's just the homeowner who can just scan and send that to the to the surveyor, isn't it? Yeah, I think that those are those are exactly the kinds of use cases we're looking at. Um, okay. We like to say, I think, like most startups, we're not idea constrained; we're execution constrained. I feel like for mm -hmm. each idea I have, it's like two years of catch up work to actually go make it real, make it happen. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's the whole thing we've learned about this space is moving is uh, was the first market that we entered into. But the more we learned about the general industries, because um, when people move, they have a lot of other needs, right? They usually go and remodel or they'll uh, paint or there's a lot of other um, activities that happen inside the home that moving is like the trigger point for. And the more we learned, the more we realized everybody has these issues where that person needs to come out and take all these measurements because that's the best uh, way to get an accurate estimate. But what I think is starting to change now is processing power has gotten better. Um, everyone's got smartphones. The abilities of these smartphones are getting better and better. And mm. a better way is emerging. Um, five years ago, you'd be crazy for saying some of these use cases that we're comprehending now. But like mm. the technology is not a static point. Um, things are not black and white possible and impossible. Like what is possible changes over time. So that's what I think is pretty exciting about this space now is it's just so many use cases are coming out that were ludicrously ambitious even mm. months ago, but then some fundamental shift changes. And now it's like, oh yeah, there's a service that'll do that for $5 a month. And like these, uh, the pace of innovation is just uh, speeding up so much faster than anything I've seen before. Sure, sure. And I, I, I totally get that, you know, because being a founder, you're always looking for what you can understand and what you have learned in your experience, right? But then mm -hmm. when you have a product in place, you talk to people and they're like, oh, you can do this, you can do that, you can do this. <laughs> and there's lots of possibility, but it's all about how you can how you can implement those features or, or evolve your product, you know? Great, mm -hmm. great. So, so Zach, I'm eager to learn more about the person behind this innovative venture. You know, can you can you take us back to your uh, like roots? Share with our listeners about your upbringing, your childhood, and how did your early experiences shape your journey and eventually led you to become the visionary entrepreneur? Sure, I think there's a lot of um, different things that kind of led to this, and everyone's path is going to be a little bit different. But I mean, for me, I've always been interested in doing a startup. I mean, I um I was kind of a a nerdy kid growing up and I would um, I would read a lot of books and uh, I actually would like practice um, writing code. We had a family computer relatively early on. My my dad worked in graphic design in the uh, early 90s and his company gave him a Mac. Like I think this was like 1992 or three. So I was I was pretty young and um, and we just kind of grew up with a computer in the house. And I remember there was one evening where my Parents were washing the dishes. It was after dinner time. I think my my siblings were uh, getting ready for bed, and mm. I was supposed to be, but I was sitting up on the family computer in Photoshop, and mm. uh, I had the pencil tool, and I wasn't really like uh, doing anything that cool. I just kind of like doodling the mouse, scribbling around. I think I'm like maybe three or four years old. It's weird to me. This is maybe one of my first memories um, as a human being, but uh, I'm doodling around with uh, with the pencil tool. And I overhear my parents um, arguing about it. And my mom is saying, hey, uh, Zach needs to get ready for bed. And by the way, you need to teach him to use a real pencil, not this like fake computer pencil. And my dad is saying, no, 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 you got to let him do this because he's growing up in a world that we didn't grow up in. And this is going to be the future. And I, I thank my dad for that afterwards. And he said it was super weird that my, I had remembered it. But like um, it, uh, it kind of worked out. But um I think this mindset that happened just growing up, like having early access to it. Um, mm -hmm. Again, I wasn't like um, wasn't like a Mozart prodigy kid or anything like that. I think I just had early access so that when everybody else was kind of catching up a couple years later, I had like a slight slight advantage maybe. So mm -hmm. then when um, when things like Director and Macromedia uh, was it Shockwave came out and Flash, like I was already. Um, 
kind of like dabbling around and go to the library and get books and like play around with it. So mm. I feel like when when my peers in school were like playing the games, I was trying to figure out how to make the games. And like one thing kind of led to another. And I remember in um in high school, there was a copy of uh, I think it was a Time magazine article, but the iPod had just come out with the color screen. I think it was called iPod Photo. And it mm. was um there was a feature that art that was done. And um, I was maybe 15 years old. Like my parents were just telling me, oh, you got to start thinking about college. What do you want to major in? And I was like, gosh, I don't know. Um, and I remember I, I came home from school and there was this magazine lying around. I don't think I even really read the article, but the cover image had a piece of graph paper with a sketch of the iPod. So there was like Johnny Ive, Steve Jobs, like the whole executive team and um, this picture. And the thing that just struck me was somebody drew that. So this like product that everyone has and everyone talks about, like it was designed. Somebody had an idea. They like sketched it out. They shared it with their colleagues. They figured it out. And it kind of like blew my mind. I remember mm -hmm. like the next morning I was making my, uh, my Eggo waffles and I'm looking at the toaster and like that switch, that knob, that button, it was designed. Somebody thought about what's the problem I'm trying to solve. They put it together. They figured out the materials, they figured out the user experience. They brought it all together. And, um, I didn't even know the right like word for the term, but I was like, that's what I want to do. And then later I learned that uh, there's computer science and computer engineering and electrical engineering. I kind of like picked, uh, I didn't want to pick, so I picked computer engineering because that meant you could do electrical and software. Um, and I feel like my whole career coming out of that has always been like trying to be broad and having these um, experiences that are outside of um, kind of like the narrow focus that's expected. And I feel mm -hmm. like that's where innovation really happens is you not always making brand new things, but like borrowing a concept from in two, two worlds that don't really collide beforehand. Um, AI and moving, never, no one was really talking about that before Yimbo. Um, and I feel like that's really where like the, the rubber meets the road is um, at the intersection of two things that you can uniquely position yourself at. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And I'm guessing that your family had quite a lot of influence on you while you were growing up or motivating, not just motivating, but also giving you the capability or, or resources around your home or, or schooling area where, where you used to play with your friends that you must be talking with your friends and saying, oh, I have... I have seen this particular software on a computer, whereas in their world, they might have not even seen a MacBook, right? Right. That leverage. So that that's really good because that gives you a lot of understanding, even though you don't know all the nitty gritties of what's going on in the background, but you at least have seen it. It's a big thing. Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. I mean, a lot of the practical skills that you pick up as an engineer, you can get them in um, maybe not professional ways. I think I learned a lot about networking by trying to set up StarCraft LAN parties when I was in middle school. We have a friend over and, uh, oh, I can't ping your IP address. Like, uh, you wouldn't just go study that for fun, but if you want to play a game, now there's now there's an incentive to, to figure these kinds yeah. of things out. And um, I feel like it's just been, it's a great way to kind of connect the dots and um, explore. Um, and also when you're a kid, it... Uh, you don't have to like worry about being productive all the time. You're kind of expected to, to hang out and have fun. And uh, we don't have these pressures until we become adults. But I feel like the other key part about it is um, this whole concept of constraints. And I feel like constraints get a bad rap where um, people like to compare themselves to uh, other companies, other organizations. And they say, oh, I don't have the resources of them. I can't do that. But I've learned that constraints are actually super helpful because they make you focus. So you were talking about childhood. You you vanished a little bit in the Did zoom. Back. Oh. There you go. Hey, you're back. Okay, but um, <laughs> but I think when it comes to uh, growing up, we had one family computer, and I have two siblings. So naturally, there's a there's a multiplexing problem, right? Where you have to uh, you have to figure out who's gonna who's gonna use yeah. it. Um, so I remember what um, my siblings would get frustrated with me because I would start writing games. I was playing around in Flash, and um, if you're worked in the software industry at all, you make mistakes. There are bugs, they come up. It's hard to fix them sometimes. So it's really hard if somebody says, hey, Zach, when will you be done? If I'm watching mm -hmm. a movie, I can go look, okay, there's 20 minutes left in the movie. I'll be done in 20. If I'm mm -hmm. trying to fix code that doesn't work, it could be 10 minutes. It could be five years. I don't know, somewhere in between there. 
Yeah. So we, um, it became an issue oh, over and over uh, again. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I was just giving you that visual. Yeah. You're absolutely correct. I couldn't agree more with you, Zach, on this one. Yeah. But uh, so what happens is, so we're running into this issue over and over again. It becomes a problem. My parents get involved and they say, um, okay, you get a time allotment. You each get, uh, I don't remember, it's like an hour, two hours a day. So when you get there, there's a little uh, timer that went by the computer. You have to press it. And when the when it beeps at the end, you got to give it up. You're done for the day. It's mm. very difficult if you want to write code with that kind of pressure, right? And they don't have 10 minutes left. I got to fix it. So what I did was I, I went to the local dollar store and I got this big yellow legal pad. Mm-hmm. And before it was my turn, I would take a pencil and I would write out my code and then I'd look at it. It's like try to run it in my head because I want to I want to make the most use of my hour, right? Like I don't want to. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to get there and then like waste it all. I have nothing to show at the end. And that skill set actually paid off like probably multiple times down the road. Um, I got to college and exams were that way. And all my friends were kind of complaining like, oh, who would ever write code on paper? This is so dumb. And mm-hmm. uh, went through it and it was like, oh, this is something I've done before. Or when you're run- solving like a really hard problem and you're trying to like... Um, Maybe you are at a computer, you're like kind of writing line by line thinking, where's where are the results going wrong? Mm-hmm. But that like concept was totally born out of a constraint. If we had infinite dollars and a computer for every person and no constraints, like it would have allowed me to um not have that discipline. And then it would have like not given that benefit down the road. So yeah. in the moment, I don't think I would have said, This is fantastic, I love this. But looking back in hindsight, it it kind of um it, it forced something good to come out of it. So I feel like constraints, it's hard to see in the moment, but when you come out of them afterwards and look back, that's when that's when you can usually see the benefit. Indeed, indeed. And, and we learn so much in our childhood and we use that learning in our whole adulthood so many times, but we don't realize it that where we actually got these habits and everything. Great. So so let's let's take a step back and and let's talk about when you had that epiphany did you look into the market? Were there other products? What was going on at the time? And what did you see from your research that encouraged you to move ahead with the, with the idea? Sure. So a few things that we did. Um, and I would say research and understanding your customers is important. But I've also seen a lot of hesitancy among people who have like ideas or people who are starting out where you don't need to be an expert researcher. You need to do a good enough job that your gut assumptions are like checked and you can see if you're on the right path or corrected if they need to be. But you don't have to like be the best in the world at it. Mm-hmm. I would argue that doing some amount of studies, even if it's possibly flawed or not as good as someone else would do, is better than just going with your assumptions. So what we did is I have this hypothesis that um, I know from computer vision lands that computers are more accurate than humans at identifying objects and images. That was like a a milestone that was reached and I was aware of it. And I had this hypothesis that um, it would help the moving industry because it could help the mover become more efficient and more accurate. Um, So I wanted to test it. So what, what would someone do if you want to test it? And also I'm, I'm, I'm a bit uh, (laughs) of a shy person. So I'm not the kind of person that really enjoys like, talking to a million people. I'll do it if I need to, but like, it's not really what energizes me. Um, So before I spoke with anyone, I was trying to just look at large swaths of data. So I went to the Better Business Bureau and I sorted the industries, um, all the companies there, they grouped them by industry. And I got a data dump and sorted it by complaints. And I was looking at which are the industries that people most complain about. And I Mm -hmm. saw like uh, diet supplements, airlines, moving companies, like a couple other ones. So I drilled in to say, okay, so people seem to have challenges in the moving industry. Why? So I go in, I start just looking at reading some reviews. Um, and then being an engineer, I dump the reviews into some code and I start pulling out keywords and inaccurate comes out. Um, bait and switch, price change. And mm-hmm. uh, the more I learned about it, the more it seemed like, okay, so people are complaining a lot. Um, I also looked at Yelp, Google reviews and saw like consistently across the board People don't really give moving companies three-star ratings. It's one or five. Everything went great or everything went horrible. And now we have to go complain about like the laundry list of things that have gone wrong. And the part that I also learned was it seemed to be across the board. There are 
like any industry, there are good companies, there are less scrupulous ones, there are professionals, there are sloppy ones. Everyone mm -hmm. had one star reviews. And that's just because what I learned was it's not for lack of trying, it's just really difficult. And people have sometimes ridiculous expectations. They go on Amazon, they buy that $2 toothbrush, and they're like, hey, moving should be the same way, but moving's totally different. There are reasons why it can't. Doesn't matter. Customer has that expectation that like Amazon and Uber and Netflix set for us that I, I hit the button, I get the result. Yeah. So I was learning that. And then now I've got a hypothesis. I have like some some confidence, but it comes time to check it out. So the cool part about moving is the market is really fragmented. So here in the United States, there are 7,000 registered moving companies. And that doesn't count the unregistered ones of like a guy with a pickup truck who will come and move you if, uh, if you ask him to. So if you want to go talk to a bunch of companies, you don't usually have to like drive far <laughs> to be able to find a bunch of them. So we went on Yelp, uh, my co-founder and I, and we just cold called. We're, um, hey, I'm working on this project. I'm doing a little bit of research before and you have a minute, like 80% of the time you get hung up on, but I just want to find like some people that would be uh, interested enough to hear me out. So mm -hmm. I think having that um, courage to kind of go outside your comfort zone was really helpful there. And mm -hmm. then um, most people were not interested. Most people said, this is crazy. I don't think it'll ever work. But we found a few that were willing to yeah, come on down. Okay. Yeah. You can buy me lunch. We can talk about it. And, um, that was, I feel like an important step to kind of confirm that this problem was real is you can learn yeah. so much just by looking at data behind the scenes. But if you go and ask an owner, like when's the last time a quote was inaccurate, what happened? Can I, <laughs> one, uh, one company even let us put on a polo from their moving company and go and we did a survey together. He said I was his intern in training and, um, I got to actually ride along and sit in the truck with him, go out to the site, look at what he's, um, kinds of questions he's asking about. Mm. And um, those kinds of insights were helpful. And I feel like at each point in time, you're, you kind of have a hypothesis in your head of how you think the industry works and could be improved. And it's mm. constantly getting like refined and iterated and tweaked a little bit as you're learning more. So that initial data research that we did kind of gave the initial hypothesis. And then going and having these um, kind of anecdotal stories Kind of like refined it and added some more color on it and then at the end of it all we realized okay if this is actually going to work then it can help a lot of people but there's two big things that we don't know and that is can it be done um, mm -hmm. or are we just like in fantasy land and if it can be done will the consumer adopt it because if someone's not willing to like click the link and go into hey this is weird ash i just want you to come to my house then it doesn't really matter how good the ai is so I think we did a, in hindsight, I think we did a relatively good job kind of tackling one big problem at once and ha understanding generally in the industry, tactically with a few local companies that'd be willing to like try it out if we had something. And then like, okay, what is the next riskiest thing? How do we de-risk that, de-risk that, de-risk that? Um, I think mm -hmm. if we went out of order, it could have, it could have not worked out because maybe we would have built the wrong things. We didn't research it. So I think kind of um, listing out what the most technically riskiest pieces um and knocking that one at a time and not getting attracted to the part that's the most fun to work at i think we all have yeah. biases if you have a certain background you want to go do the thing you're good at but that's not always like what um, the right order is so having um that kind of like running hypothesis i think is helpful and then also for me having a co-founder where you've got another person you're like constantly bouncing ideas off of that mm. way like um if I do something crazy, then uh, or have like a weird idea that appears off in another direction, you kind of have somebody else who can bounce counter ideas off of you and you can decide what to do out of the two of those. So I think just yeah. having a lot of exploring in those early days is pretty key. Yeah, I, I really like the approach you took. You know, this is this is one of the and th that is why I love talking to founders like this is the golden nugget for for all of my listeners to the show that if you're launching a product or service, and if you have any background with with computer with, with computer science or, or IT or data, you can always grab all the feedback in your industry, put them into a sort of like a spreadsheet, and then pick up the the keywords as you did, right? It's like you mm -hmm. did. Uh, that, that's amazing because I never heard anyone on my show who did the same thing. So mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. That's amazing. This is something, is that something from your book or is that something which you just came up before uh, this, this particular uh, 
startup. Yeah, I mean, we, we talk about the we talk about the early days in the in the book and the different uh, lessons that we learned. Um, mm. So the the way the book is structured, I got got a copy here. It's called Grow hey. Fast Lessons from an AI Startup. And the way it works is um, it's designed to kind of take the lessons that we've learned from starting Yumbo and yeah. split it up into a way that is um, helpful for somebody else. So mm. it's um, organized around lessons. It roughly follows the timeline of the story from like having the idea to making the leap to um, getting your first customers to having your first customers complain that your product is limited to like navigating all these different things. Um, but it's kind of split like lesson by lesson. So in the earlier days, it's more about talking about um, iteration, customer interviews. Then we go on into uh, prioritization when you've got like a million people asking you for things and you only have a small engineering team. How do you build the right things? Um, and then we focus a bit on to how do you identify a good use case for AI? Because I think it's so powerful in what it does that people sometimes ask to do impossible things. Like um, but yeah. the thing we talked about behind the door, I've actually been asked that from a customer before. Really? Like, um, uh, are you working on updates to the AI that can uh, that can see closed doors? <laughs> like, that's called X-ray vision. It exists in sci-fi. And no, your uh, your smartphone can't see through closed doors. Um, yeah. But I mean, it makes sense, right? It's like, it's so powerful at what it does. So people just assume it can do certain yeah. things. But there are strategies and methods you can do to kind of... Um, understand is this going to be a good use case and i think mm -hmm. the key is go a layer beneath and understand how the underlying technology works so sure. perception algorithms usually look at samples so if mm -hmm. you are going to have a hard time collecting enough representative samples to train an algorithm it's going to be really hard to make a good detector for that so just because you saw the ai like count people accurately or you saw it maybe um I think I, I got my teeth cleaned a couple of weeks ago at the dentist and they had some tool where it would um, take the x-ray and look at uh, like, do you have cavities? Like that works mm -hmm. great because there's like a lot of data that you can train on. But if you're going to go make like a, I don't know, like a lunar mining tool, that's going to have to go look at the uh, sift through lunar dust and find, uh, find things of interest. Like it's going to be maybe hard to get realistic samples. And then that use case, even though it's possible in one domain, maybe impossible in another. Yeah. So I yeah. think, uh, really getting like a layer deeper and understanding the the core technology that this product's value proposition is built on like is that on solid ground or is that kind of shaky and then um don't don't spend your time on shaky things because um you'll get to a point where it won't be able to be improved and you'll get a lot of angry customers yeah yeah sure sure okay great so so could you could you give us a sense of the the size of the business the number of customers size of team a little bit sure so we are about 70 folks worldwide now, about half mm -hmm. of that in the US, other half international. We have clients in about 30 different countries. Um, and then every, uh, this is my favorite metric, the, uh, so the typical Yumbo video is like 20 seconds long. Um, every day we're processing a couple hundred hours of those videos, um, identifying the items that are in it, um, sending it back to the movers. So it's... Um, it's been really interesting. Um, we have customers in um, pretty much most time zones. So like having to set up um, infrastructure that never goes down, that um, is just as fast for someone in Australia, someone in Canada, someone in Europe. Um, mm -hmm. And then how do you make sure that it's like reliable um, has been has been pretty key too, because we're embedding ourselves in someone's sales process. So it's really important that you help people turn around quotes quickly. It needs to work. It needs to work reliably. So we've mm -hmm. put in a lot of effort and energy around that. Um, it's always got to be on. It's not okay to have downtime. So it's been yeah. uh, been a long road, but I think we finally we finally have something that's been up and running and got um, our uh, our uptime is published publicly. So anyone can go to yumbostatus.com and look at our uptime. And uh, there was a lot of anxiety like four or five years ago when we first set that up, and we're like, hey, are we really ready to make it public yet? Um, how, but, uh, how long it took you guys to get the first version up and running? So the very first version took about maybe a year or so. Um, mm -hmm. And it was really limited. So I mentioned your first version of your product is going to be bad. Um, yeah. So our first version of the product could detect five different items. I think mm -hmm. it was a coffee table, sofa, lamp. Um, and I think uh, a couple office ones, I think office table, uh, office uh, chair, and then a conference table. Because we're doing a lot of demos to like uh, 
people and they'd always say come in my conference room so we had to make sure hey, i was good in the conference room yeah, um, yeah. and i think the the key there was we wanted to have an intellectually honest value proposition to the customer even though the ai was limited because we knew it would take time i mean i got to get the data i got to train it i can work my way up um so now our ai detects over like 250 items but back in the day when it was five i needed a reason to exist so that the customer would stick around long enough to give me more data where i can get from five to ten to fifteen to twenty and i think that part is also key is that we knew the limitations of the technology and we worked the product and the value prop and the pricing and the way that we set everything up so that somebody would get value out of it in its current state so that you don't have to be like patient and five years down the road they'll get enough samples and then this tool will be helpful but until then it's a waste of time that's that's not um that's not a great value prop so we realized we were saving drive time even if the ai detects zero things you don't have to get in the car don't have to burn fuel don't have to have the like uh insurance the mileage racking up on your vehicle mm-hmm. and then what we found was when the results come back, a lot of movers were doing things all over the place. Some people used spreadsheet software, some people used pen and paper, some people just kept the tally in their head and gave a price at the end. So by building out a tool where they could look at the results, go over the visuals, identify what's there, and um, give the quote back to the customer, that was actually valuable because most other quoting tools didn't have pictures. It was uh, kind of, again, all over the place. So mm-hmm. even though the AI only detected five items in the early days, we were still able to have a reason why someone would want to use the tool. And then maybe it would take 30 minutes to do a review. Then we'd come out, then we'd analyze and see where are people spending time. Oh, a lot of people are adding um, beds or splitting double beds versus twin beds or um, people are adding in TVs. So we could actually look at where their pain points were and then prioritize improving the product based on that. So the metric that we were aiming for was review time. So 40 minutes, cool, now we're down to 35, now we're down to 30, now we're down to 20, now we're down to 10. And that all just came from iteration. And yeah, I feel yeah. like the key is that iteration is you need to survive long enough to get through the iterations. And that's why the value prop has got to be there. So a customer who joins isn't hopeful of a future that could be that they're getting value today. And then that gives you the fuel that you need to kind of keep on iterating and improving and making the product better. Sure, sure. Okay. So, 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 tell us more about what were the, were this all bootstrap, or did you found some funding also? You raised some funding for this product to launch. Yeah, so we we got it up and running to the point where we felt like it was a viable business. So we got our first customer. We had some product that was working. So that was bootstrap. By um, I was taking on consulting projects um, to kind of pay the bills while I was doing that. And then we did um, we did do a seed round and we did a series A to kind of help accelerate things. So I think for those we wanted to um, we wanted to grow and expand. Um, so if you look at the the property insurance space, I think we wouldn't have been there if we didn't take um, some strategic money from someone who could make relevant introductions and help with that. So it was um, I think if you're if you're looking for advice there, I think the biggest thing that I would suggest is um, don't just look for dollars look for what that fund or investor can do to help um because i mean it's 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 tougher now than it was in earlier years but i mean if all you need are dollars or multiple ways to get that um but someone who's been there who's done that who can help you who can like operationally help you accelerate the business Mm. i think that is um it's harder to put like a tangible dollar amount on but it can be it can be really helpful. Like there are just doors that people can open if you know the right people. If you've been there before, you can advise. So um, I think um, what we did in our in our early days was we would practice um, where we would have like a spreadsheet of all these different potential investors we wanted to talk to, and the ones we were really excited about, who we thought would be like a great fit. We didn't start with them first. We wanted to kind of um, obviously all of them were. Um, in the target that like if it worked out we would have been happy but the ones that you were most excited about you kind of do a little bit later get some reps through the system get some feedback um ask people what worked what didn't and then kind of work your way up to the ones that you're really really excited about mm-hmm. um and i think that that approach worked. there's also a lot of um there are a lot of resources out there for 
founders, um, a lot of local events too. I've noticed a lot of um, city centers have like another San Diego startup week here. I think in London, there's London Tech Week. There's a lot of different um, avenues where you can practice your pitch. So you mm -hmm. don't have to go through the entire process of having a real one. You can have um, somebody mm -hmm. who's been there before, maybe not actively investing, but like they've they've raised and a lot of it is just practice. Um, what kind of questions come up? What kind of points do you want to focus on that get the message across, but don't like take forever to get to your point and things like that. And yeah. um, I've just noticed there are a lot more resources now that are out there that uh, I kind of wish we had when we were starting where we had to go and practice like for real with real investors. And there are like uh, pitch fests you can do and these all these um, are kind of like communities that have cropped up to, because I think people realize it's tough. They realize it's hard. And a lot of these times you get one chance at doing it. So best to best to practice and network and try it out with friendly folks before you do it for real. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I'm enjoying this conversation show so much, but unfortunately, we are moving towards the end of the interview. So before we go towards the end, I would like to ask you a couple of questions, which is like, um, what is the current pricing model if somebody wants to, you know, use your, your AI software? And what is the procedure or what is the um, primary way you're generating leads or customers currently for your for your business sure so we price on a SaaS model software as a service so a um like in slack uh they use uh users is like their billable unit so the more mm -hmm. users the 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 more it costs we have um surveys is our uh, is our unit so it's free for the end user the customer but the mm -hmm. service provider who would have had to send someone in the truck otherwise, um, they're the ones who pay us. And then we um, we have different plans. So if you're going to do like a thousand uh, Yembos a month, your price per unit will be less than someone who's doing 10 or 100 surveys a month. So we have different plans that are kind of like sized for if you're a small local company, if you're a mid-sized one, or if you're a larger enterprise. And... Um, Moving is very networked um, because it's hard to be a mover in isolation. Like if someone's moving California to UK, they would um, likely need a partner on the other side of the uh, of the pond to to fill the. Yeah. So, so a lot of these uh, movers they know other movers. So if one of them has a good experience and they have that visual inventory, and they hand it off and say, "Okay, like you'll unpack it. Here's everything that's there." Um, that's a great uh, referral for us. So we spend a lot of our marketing efforts at trade shows um, and going to like industry conferences where people are. Now we have um, like we have a website, we have inbound, we 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 kind of do all the basic hygiene factors that are needed to to run a modern SaaS business. But I think the one that um, I would say is a bit like unique that we step on the gas maybe more than some other companies are these are these events because. Uh, there are very relevant audiences there that are like interested to learn more and they can try it out. Um, we usually bring furniture and um, hand people a phone and say, Hey, go scan it. You can check out the results right away. And it gives people like an opportunity to get familiar with it and make it less of like a big, scary, unknown kind of what is this AI technology? They can just try it out, ask us if they have any questions and it makes the on-ramp a lot easier. Indeed. Indeed. And I guess that the, 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 the space is more, more physical in terms of even though you're you're into SaaS business, but it's more physical in terms of delivering the value. So it makes more sense to emphasize on events where you can actually practically show them how it works and what the results are. So that's that's uh, that's amazing. Great. So so before we we move to so we I have this uh, quick fire question round with all of sure. my. <laughs> Interviews and the show, but before we move to this quick fire round, I would like to ask you one simple question, which is: throughout your journey and experience, there must have been valuable lessons learned. If you could, if you don't mind sharing, could you reflect on your experience and tell us about a mistake or a setback that you encountered along the way that you now consider maybe maybe not a regret, but a lessons learned? And additionally, what advice would you give our listener based on that experience? Sure. I mean, I've done things I regret. It's okay. Um, I think we all do. I think one of the earlier ones that I learned was there are so many problems and so many threats that startups face when you're starting. And the a lot of the threats are existential. Um, so you get really good at solving problems. What I 
regret looking back was so much of a focus on fixing problems and not enough of a focus on celebrating wins. Hmm. Um, we had some, uh, we had some challenges earlier on where um, our, my first uh, few engineers, they weren't always sure if things were not going well, it was very clear what was not going well, who was responsible, what needed to be done. If things were going well, um, I wasn't giving good feedback. So um, we'd brainstorm a feature. So-and-so asked for this. I think we can upsell. And then like it would work, like a customer enjoys it. They just upgraded their plan, but I would not connect the dots. And I would uh, just move on to the next thing. So then people would say, hey, that thing that was so important like two weeks ago, what happened? Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that's not a really great way to run your business because now the people that are actually making the product better and moving things forward don't have that signal around how things are being perceived. And um, people can assume the worst. They assume it's bad. They um, they don't know what uh, what what to focus on next if this was really loved and people enjoyed it, like they should know why. So that the next time they're building something similar, they can like have that feedback. So I make a point now, and that's a, it's a lesson from the book as well, that uh, celebrating the wins can be more important than fixing the problems because mm-hmm. you're also choosing what you highlight and what you talk about and building that culture with your team. And yeah. um, if you have a culture of just constant firefighting, it's like, uh, it'll wear you out. It's stressful. And um so I think we, we make a point now to kind of celebrate these kinds of things because people need to know what was what what did we do that worked well. And um I think that's I think that's important as a as a mature leader at a company. Yeah, yeah. It it definitely provides a lot of motivation and appreciation to the team to to work on something which they're part of. So it's always a good idea. Great. So we should wrap up now. So we are going to go into the lightning round. Uh, I've got six quick questions for you. So just answer them as quickly as you can. You ready? Ready. Yeah, let's do it. (laughs) What's one of the best pieces of business advice you have received? Uh, Ship early. Uh, Don't wait till you have everything perfect. Get it out Mm -hmm. there, get customer feedback and let that be your your start to refine. Awesome. What book would you recommend to our audience and why? Zero to One by Peter Thiel, because it talks about um, getting something off the ground. I feel like operating is a very different skill set than initiating something. And it's one of the most succinct, concise, helpful books that I've read on uh, going from nothing to something. Nothing to something. Yeah, makes sense. What's one attribute or characteristic in your mind of a successful founder? I would say a problem solving mentality. You run into so many different hurdles and setbacks and you're expected to do a lot of things that you've never done before. But um, rather than letting that overwhelm you, like breaking the problem down and um, solving it and doing one step at a time, making things that could be big bet the farm scenarios, like make small reversible decisions when you can. I think good problem solving skills can kind of make challenging, daunting tasks much more manageable. Indeed, indeed. Um, what's your favorite pers- personal productivity tool or habit? I This is going to be really simple, um, but I've tried every productivity tool out there that I can think of. Trello, Jira, Asana, Monday. I email myself stuff. Use Inbox mm-hmm. Zero. If it's still in your inbox, you still need to handle it. And if I have like an idea in the middle of the night, I wake up and... Uh, you email yourself stuff. It's the only tool I find myself keep coming that I keep coming back to. It's like a, for better or for worse, we're in our inboxes all day, every day, anyway. So you don't have to like remember to log into it. But um, they're probably half the emails I send are to myself. Indeed, indeed. I I like it too. I I I send myself uh, or schedule emails to myself when I need to remember something. Not the alarmic remembrance, like you know, pick up the daughter from the school mm-hmm. that's not what i send i send something like um you know plan a trip to a oh that's cool that's so you'll point. schedule it to yourself so it gets delivered yeah. like when it's it, okay it's can i borrow that, that idea do you do you charge for this advice or can i do that too that's, that's a cool idea <laughs> come on <laughs> take it away <laughs> so yeah that's that's really good okay my next question what's a new or a crazy business idea you would love to pursue if you had the time I think the as a as a founder progresses in their career, the size and the scale of the problems that they're solving should increase. Um, so I would love to do something 
on a global scale. I mean, we, we have clients in multiple countries and things like that, but I think, um, if a time is of no, um, concern and we can go tackle big things, I'd love to figure out what to do with all this carbon dioxide we're putting in the atmosphere. I mean, you can debate, um, whether or not humans are causing it, but I feel like you can't debate that it's there. And I feel like uh, figuring out clever things to do with it. Um, I just, I have a gut feeling that there's something there, but, uh, Maybe a problem for another day. I got my hands full now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And last but not least, what's an interesting or fun fact about you that most people don't know? I think most people don't know. Um, I grew up with llamas. I spent some time living in Vermont. And um, I was vice president of my local 4-H club. And people generally just assume, I think, because of my background, that I'm a, I'm a tech guy. I live in a city. But um, if you ever need help shearing a llama, I can help you with that. And um, I like to spend a lot of time in nature as well. I like to go camping and do these kinds of things on, on weekends. But it's kind of fun to um, focus on the tech stuff and then just like be off in the middle of nowhere, completely off grid uh, camping and things too. So I try to straddle those two worlds. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that so much. I, I Yeah, we, we do have uh, places where we go with my, with my family and where we, we have a rule. All the phones inside the house. Everything mm -hmm. that we do outside, like barbecue and everything, no phones. So, that's that's great. <laughs> and I okay. found when you're camping, it's fun too. Like, um, it almost takes me some time. Like, I'll reach in my pocket even though there's no phone there, and it's like you have to like detox. It takes a takes some energy Indeed. to get there. <laughs> great stuff. Great. Well, Zach, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your story and backing the last years of building this business and some of the ups and downs. Um, if people want to check out Yambu, what, what they have to do, what's the website, what they should search? Sure. Yeah. You can go to yambo.ai um, or Google it. We'll, we'll show up. Part of the reason why I picked the Yambo name was it didn't mean anything. So we can get to number one on Google really easily. Yeah. Um, and then I'm on LinkedIn is like the social media I'm most active on. So if you look up Zach Ratner, um, mm -hmm. there's links to Yambo, links to the book website, all those fun things in there. So that's what I recommend is go to Yambo or go to LinkedIn. Perfect. Perfect. Zach, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your inspiring journey and impactful work you're doing through Yambu. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on Founders Podcast. Thank you, Ash. Happy to be here. Perfect. Thank you all for tuning into the episode of our Founders Podcast today. I hope you found our conversation with Zach insightful and inspiring. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to our podcast and stay updated on our future interviews with proven founders and industry experts. We have a lineup of incredible guests and valuable insights coming your way. Stay inspired, stay motivated, and keep building.